with you today. Please turn to Revelation 20. We've decided to try to look at the advents of Christ through two different lenses. One in Genesis, as we talked about protology, the beginning of all the doctrines of the Bible, beginning to sprout and take forms through those promises given by God. And the next two weeks, today and next week, we're going to be considering out of Revelation the end of the matter, the second coming of Christ today, and next week the eternal state, the eternal state. And I'd ask you to stand with me one more time as we read Revelation chapter 20. And as I hope to show you and prove to some reasonable degree, verses 1 through 6 are talking about the present day, and verses 7 through 15 when Christ will come again. And so we have a a wonderful view in this passage of the time between the advents of Jesus Christ, between His first coming, which we've been talking about, and His second coming, which we look toward greatly. Revelation 20, this is God's holy word given to us today. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones. Daniel 7 should be in our minds. And seated on those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or the image or had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no Power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence the earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Please pray with me. Lord, uh, there, there are not many texts that have solemn weight attached to them of, of man's eternal state and destiny. And here you have been pleased to reveal to us a, a day coming 
and a day that already is where we live and have responsibility to cling to Your Word. And I pray today that You would fill me with Your Spirit to be able to give hope to Your people and that You'd fill all of us, God, to be able to receive that hope, God. And even if there's some here today, any here today, who do not trust the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that You would give them assurance that the Gospel is open and ready for anybody, any sinner to come and embrace the free promises He gives. Help us today, God, to love Your promises and to understand them. Help me to do, Lord, what I cannot do. Please, God, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The thing that should come into our mind as we've looked at the last couple of weeks is that God so knows our weak frame, even as believers regenerated by His Spirit, that repetition of the same promises and the same Gospel is necessary for us in our salvation. That as we consider Genesis chapter 3 that was written, that took place rather, at least 2,000 years before the time of Moses writing it, we consider that even there, promises were revealed for the people of God to cling on to. And those promises grew and grew and became brighter and brighter for the good of His people. Repetition is necessary for our growth. And here we come to the end of the Bible, and even in this book, Revelation, which should be seen by us as a capstone of prophecy. The end of biblical prophecy and the greatest manifestation of it. I hope to show you today that we have repetition of the same scene over and over throughout Revelation seven times in order to convince us, the church, that we should have hope in God. Now, to fence what I'm about to do just a little bit, I will not be able to answer every question about Revelation chapter 20 that you have here today. Okay, um, But I'm going to do my best to briefly give a synopsis of what I think is the best reading and how we might benefit from this passage rather than just wrestle over the timing of it. Because here we have John as the, the revelator. John revealing the consequences first of Christ's first advent and the great judgment of Christ at His second advent. And so here we have a period of history that is unknown to us, but that spans from the Son of God suffering, dying, and raising from the dead to Him coming again to claim all of His people for His own. This all takes place according to, I think, the best interpretation in this passage. And the purpose of it is to give us great hope. To give us hope in the present because verses 1-6 through are present and in the future and His coming Judgment. And so in verses 1 through 6, I would just tell you that the main theme, the thing that I believe the Spirit of God wants to communicate to each of His people is Christian, take heart. Have confidence. Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated already. His kingdom has come, and the effects of it are seen even in this life before His second advent. And so here, the hardest thing that we have to do, that my job is today, is to present to you that the millennium, this thousand year period that's been repeated several times, is a present reality for the people of God. And I want to reemphasize something. 
This text is not given by the Holy Spirit to His church, to His persecuted and suffering church in Revelation in order for us to have intellectual debate about what the timing of it is. It's not the purpose that the Holy Spirit has. The purpose the Holy Spirit has is unfailingly to give hope to His church to endure to the end. To keep the things written in this book that we might have eternal life. And to help us, turn with me to chapter 1 of Revelation. And we'll be going through the book of Revelation in different ways several times here today. But I want us to, to see that even though this text is not given for debate, we must try to some degree to ascertain the time frame in order to understand what's even happening. It's necessary to think about these things. And so in Revelation 1 through 3, we see this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that is, which the Father gave to Jesus Christ, to show his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Notice verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I want us to see there that John expects that in one reading of the book of Revelation, we should hear it in such a way that we are spiritually edified by it and not just utterly confused about the time period. This is meant for Christians to obtain hope. And so in Revelation 20, we're going to look through some interpretive principles very quickly for us to understand this time frame that it is between Christ's first and second coming. If you're still in Revelation 1, I want us to notice there's a clue given to us, a great clue, by the Apostle John on how to interpret this book. Uh, Pre-millenarians, post-millenarians, some of them, would want to take this thousand years as a literal time period, and the chain is a literal chain and all these things, but there's very specific words that the Apostle John tells us that we shouldn't have that literal, physically literal reading of this word. And the first is this word, revelation. Revelation, this comes from the Greek, apocalypsis. And John is pointing to us that this is an apocalyptic writing. There's a specific genre of book that Paul, that John is writing, and it is in the genre of apocalyptic writings, which are characterized by end times realities, cataclysmic judgments, seen in signs, symbols, numbers, and all these different things. It is meant by the word apocalypsis that is used here to show us that this book is not to be interpreted literally whenever we can interpret it literally. He shows us that. Now, We are to be cautious in reading Revelation, but we're to be cautious within the genre that is given, which is apocalyptic genre. But it's also said that to show John the things that were to take place. That is, that what is written in the book of Revelation is somewhat to be seen by us. He's explaining and describing visions of God to us. And again, this highlights the symbolic and visionary aspect of this book. John, to sum it up, does not leave us to guess how we're to interpret the book of Revelation. He tells us very clearly at the outset 
how we're supposed to interpret it. We should not expect that this sacred history given to us is written like a modern textbook that chronologically and literally explains events as they happen, but rather we are to read it as first century symbolic apocalyptic literature. That's important for us. That, that helps us to read Revelation 20. To come to it and know, okay, I'm going to be confronted with symbols here and I need to have a wherewithal to deal with that. Secondly, the structure of the book itself should teach us how to interpret Revelation 20. Right? First and foremost, the book of Revelation is not written chronologically. That is, that we can locate a specific chapter and verse within Revelation and say, that's where the church is right now. Chapter 7, verse 9, that's where we are. Rather, this book is written somewhat cyclically. Now, to give an illustration of that, and, uh, you know, for me to give a sports illustration is dangerous because I don't know anything about it, but I think I know this. When you have a, a football play on TV, and it's not exactly sure where the ball landed, what exactly happened, you often have a replay where they'll zoom out and they have different camera angles happening. There might be a, an aerial camera that shows the entire team and where they are at a particular time to try to ascertain if somebody went over the line too soon. You might have a, a camera on the grass level to see if they crossed the, uh, the goal. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> and made a, made a sports point, right? Um, but you have different angles showing the same event from different angles in order to ascertain. Now, if you looked at those different things and you didn't have the context of what just happened, you might think there are different events taking place. But stepping back and seeing the story as a whole, you realize, oh, this is the same event viewed from different angles to help us to understand what's going on in different ways, in different modes. And that's how Revelation, the book of Revelation, is written. The coming of Christ, the persecution of the church, the destruction of the wicked, and the eternal state are all put before us in seven different camera angles. Seven different sections of this book, all consummating in judgment. And we could spend a lot of time going through that. And I'm going to try to shorten that by what I think is the most convincing argument that this actually takes place. And that is the final judgment. We have three times recorded in the book of Revelation that the world's armies are gathered together and the world's armies are destroyed. Turn with me to a couple passages, please. Revelation chapter 16. And for time's sake, I'm just going to read. I'm not going to read a lot of context. Verse 14 says, For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not be naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. We see the, the whole armies of the earth gathered together. And if you look down at the next paragraph, you see that Babylon and these armies are destroyed. Okay? All the armies of the world gathered together, destroyed by God in chapter 16. Well, turn with me to chapter 19. 
we see a very similar event taking place. Chapter 19 and verse 19, the Apostle John through the Spirit writes, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And if you'll scroll down, the same thing in verses 20 through 21. The armies are destroyed. The beast and the false prophet are destroyed. And then in our text today, chapter 20 and verse 8. It says that Satan will be released from prison in verse 7 and in verse 8, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and likewise they are destroyed. And so the question that ought to come into our mind seeing that is how many times can we really expect in the history of the world for all the armies of the earth to be gathered together, all of them to be destroyed, and for somehow the earth to survive this? I think that we should question that. And see, maybe there's a cycle here that the same story is being repeated from different angles. But likewise, the city of Babylon is destroyed five times in the book of Revelation. I'll just have you briefly go through those with me. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. Notice another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen. Is Babylon the great, she who has made the nations drink the wine of her passion and her sexual immorality. Babylon is fallen. Chapter 16. We're already here to some degree, but notice verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his Wrath. Notice verses 20 through 21 and how similar they are to our text at the end. And every island fled away as the earth fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Babylon is judged. 14, 16, chapter 17. Babylon is judged again in verse 6. Notice. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman that carries with her the seven heads and the ten horns. And we see in verse 16, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh and burn her with fire. Okay, we have the destruction of Babylon. Chapter 18 and verse 2, we see again, And he called with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean beast and detestable beast. And then in chapter 19, lastly, verses 2 through 3, we again for the fifth time see judgment on Babylon. I'll read verse 1. After this I heard... What seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So, we see three global Judgments of all the armies of the world. We see five times the city of Babylon, which represents the world system, being judged and fallen. 
Therefore, I think that it's very likely that we are reading a cyclical repetition, or as theologians would say, a recapitulation of events over and over. The same event characterizes this whole book. Okay, Now, as we come to the end of chapter 19, we see this destruction of the whole world. All of the armies, the beast, the false prophet, all being destroyed. And so when we come to chapter 20, I think if we're reading the book rightly, we should be saying, okay... I've seen a repetition of this same story six times now. I'm expecting to see another repetition of that same story. Not necessarily a chronological next step. And that's what we see in verse 20. If it is true that all of these things are repetition, then the blessings and judgments of Revelation 20 should be read in verses 1 through 6 as present realities. The first present reality that we see then in verses 1 through 3 is the present judgment of Satan. We see in really graphic form an angel of God descending from heaven with a key and a chain and he binds the ancient serpent. And our mind should immediately be going back to Genesis chapter 3, that serpent that was in the Garden of Eden that tempted Adam and Eve. And this serpent is bound, is bound. And so we, we have to ask, what does the binding mean here? Okay. Now, if we're going to take an overly literal rendition of this, that this spiritual creature was taken and physically kind of bound so it cannot move, we'd have to say that Satan is totally and completely bound, and we would say that that would mean that there is a period of bliss on the earth without any evil or sin. But that is not what we have here. What we have is actually interpreted by John himself, if you notice, says that he sees that dragon, in verse 2, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it and sealed it over him, notice, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. That Satan is bound in a very particular way here that he would not deceive the nations. Now, that does not mean then that when we think of Satan being bound presently, it doesn't mean that the devil is not active in this world or that he's unable to tempt individual people or to deceive individual people. That certainly is the case. It does not mean that he is not the God of this world, as 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us. It does not mean that he is not the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. Rather... Satan, in this present time, is bound in a very particular way that he cannot have full deception upon the nations. And think with me. Prior to the first advent of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion and his resurrection, Satan fully deceived the nations of the earth, didn't he? All of them walked in absolute darkness except for the nation of Israel, sacrificing even their children to God, pagan gods, living in absolute darkness, and as Ephesians 2 tells us, without hope and without God in the world. Satan fully deceived the nations before the coming of Jesus Christ. But likewise, if we think back even further, Satan deceived Adam and Eve fully in the Garden of Eden. He deceived God's people fully in that place. 
And here, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see Satan cast down and bound in such a way that he no longer is going to deceive all the nations of the earth or fully deceive God's people. There is a protection given to us in this partial judgment of Satan. Now, we see here that he is judged, but he's judged because of the work of Jesus Christ. He's judged because of the work of Jesus Christ. That is, although the full judgment of Satan hasn't come in this era, right now as we speak, we see these judgments have come from the powerful effect of Christ's work. That when He died on the cross, it affected even the spiritual realities around us. And I'd have you turn to a couple of texts to show you that. In Matthew chapter 12, we see a a great shadow of this. Matthew chapter 12, and you might recall the context that in verse 29, a demon-possessed man, Christ exercised the demon from him, and the Pharisees said that he only casts out demons because of Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. But notice what Jesus Christ says with Revelation 20 in the back of our mind. Verse 29, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may plunder his house. Oh, I hope you see the beauty in that, brothers and sisters. Satan has been bound at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ that Jesus, by His Spirit, by the Gospel, can go and plunder Satan's world, so to speak. He bound all of the nations together, deceived them, and they were His people. But now, at the time of the Gospel, it's opened up where every nation under heaven can come to our God. And Jesus plunders the house of the devil. We see the same reality in John chapter 12. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you, what I'm trying to show you here is that many times throughout the New Testament, the work of Christ is said to have bound in some way the devil. Okay? This isn't a new thought or a new concept. Revel- or John chapter 12. Notice in verses 31 through 33, Jesus speaking. Notice what he says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Nations aren't deceived anymore. The ruler of that world had been cast down and now the Gentiles can come in. And in verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Colossians 2 is probably the key text. Colossians chapter 2 in verses 13 through 15. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. That... Christ on the cross not only saved human souls, but there was an effect upon the demonic and the satanic realm through His death and resurrection. Verses 13-15, through notice what is said in the Word of God. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. That should bring a bell about the resurrection language. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. These are demonic powers. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
Jesus Christ on the cross, He did more than just save His people eternally from their sins. And that's certainly the greatest thing that we consider. But He also temporally and partially bound and triumphed over the satanic realm for our good and the salvation of the nations. This is good news, brothers and sisters, because I look around the room this day, there aren't many, if any, true ethnic Jews in this room. It's because of the partial binding that was done upon Satan at Christ's resurrection that any of us can say that I come to God. That repentance was granted to the Gentiles in a fully orbed way that we don't see in the Old Testament through the death of Christ and this binding of Satan. The Gospel came to us for our salvation, but also for our protection. Because what I want us to notice is that this is a partial binding. That Satan still operates on this world. He still attempts to destroy the church. But we have here a wonderful promise that he is bound in such a way where his limit will not be passed. He will not destroy the church for good and forever. Christ's kingdom will never be thwarted. And with all the questions we might have about Revelation 20, 1 through 3 remaining in your mind, okay, that I can't answer, I already said that, okay, we should be convinced and have hope that Satan is temporally bound up so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. And that should give us hope, brothers and sisters. But I think what should give us even more hope is not the present judgment of Satan, but the present glory of the saints. Verses 4 through 6. I'm going to reread this. Then I saw thrones and seated on them those to whom the authority to judge was committed And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And we'll stop there. I want us to notice that our attention is turned away from the present binding of Satan and judgment, condemnation coming upon this most wicked foe of the church, and our attention is drawn downward to upward to heaven, where we see thrones placed, and we see the saints glorified in a partial kind of way. Now, you might say, well, how do we know that the thrones are in heaven? I think that the language bears itself out, if you'll notice, that when John sees these thrones... Part of the group that are sitting on this throne are beheaded souls. Okay, These aren't people on the earth, beheaded souls on the earth. This is most naturally in heaven. Because in Revelation 6, part of John's vision is that he saw the beheaded souls underneath the altar crying to God in the heavenly vision. But I think even more convincing than that, I believe there's 46 times in the book of Revelation where the word thrones is used. And all of them have to do either with heaven above, I think 44 of those times, and the remaining three have to do with satanic thrones. None of them have to do with earthly thrones. In John's writing, thrones are referring to a heavenly reality. John looks to heaven and sees a group of people, and we might say, well, who are these people? These are saints that have passed into glory, that, that have died physically in this world. That this present reality, this judgment, Satan's still attempting 
to destroy the church, although he can't quite yet. Some of these people are martyred, killed, and they live now with Jesus Christ. But what we should see, what should give us hope, is that these people are reigning with Christ. They suffered on this earth. They died. Some of them beheaded the most gruesome of deaths. But now, even in this time presently, you can think about heaven. And what's in heaven is not just God and his angels, but saints lifted up and glorified, reigning with our Savior. Whatever that means. And I I can't tell you exactly what that means. What does it mean for them to reign with Christ? I don't exactly know. But it is a glorious state and much more glorious than this terrifying wilderness, this inter-advental period that we find ourselves in. The people of God are in glory, not in judgment, and reigning with God. Now, if you'll just turn quickly with me, and I, I hope that turning back and forth isn't losing the the flow or whatever, but I just want us to see that inaugurated already blessings to dead saints is repeated over and over in the book of Revelation. As we think about these saints in heaven, again, this isn't a new novel interpretation, but Christ promises that when we die, before he comes again, we will reign with him. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Notice what John says. And again, brothers and sisters, we're to see the inaugurated kingdom blessings that come upon us now because of Christ's death and His first advent. Verse 5. And from Jesus, the faithful witness, and notice, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That Christ made us a kingdom at his death. But more than that, turn with me, probably the page over. Chapter 2 and verse 10. This is the, the warnings and the edification of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And we see that Christ promises something wonderful here. In verse 10, Do not fear, he tells this church in the first century, what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested for ten days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and what? I will give you the crown of life. Saints in heaven, right? Be faithful to death. You're going to die physically. But if you do that, you'll be glorified in my kingdom. You'll get the crown of life. Notice, Verse chapter 4 and verse 4. And we could go many other places, but for time's sake, I tried to pick the most clear ones. Chapter 4, verse 4. This is John's vision of heaven after he talks to the seven churches. Notice verse 3 first. And he who sat there on the throne had an appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow and the appearance of an emerald. Notice verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with the golden crowns on their heads. Now, this is symbolical. This is symbolism, brothers and sisters, but I think the most clear way to make sense of this is the 24 thrones represents the peoples of God, both in the New and the Old Covenant. 24 thrones representing the whole of God's people sitting around the throne in heaven, reigning with Jesus Christ, we have great blessings that are said that are going to be ours 
at our death in particular. At our death in particular. And so we can say with Revelation 14, 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. This is great blessing. We will will be partially glorified in heaven at our death, brothers and sisters. When we are with Christ, we will reign with Him. We will have crowns on our heads. Now, the next thing we come to in Revelation 20 is, if that's true and we receive a reigning kingdom with Christ, glory and honor at our death before the resurrection of our bodies, what is the means of that glory? How do we come to attain it? Now, if it's at death, it's certainly through our death, but I want us to notice how our death is described. Notice in verse 6, uh, we'll read verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And again, I'm not going to answer all your questions on this. I'll try not to repeat myself much more than that. Okay, But... We have here the first resurrection as being listed as the the means by which the saints have these blessings. And there's a couple of options given to us in Scripture to understand this. And I'm going to propose to you that both are true. The first is that this could be speaking about the spiritual resurrection that we experience when we're converted. That when we heard the preaching of the gospel... And understood it and saw it as beautiful for the first time. The Spirit of God came into our heart and made us new people. Killed the old Adam and raised up a new one in its place. And properly, I think this can be called a first resurrection. But, it could also be glory through death. Glory through death. That at our death, we are raised, our spirits are raised to glory. Now, this is the position that most take this second option, but I think that we can see kind of a continuum there. That when we hear the gospel and we're regenerated, that's the beginning of new life in our hearts. But at our death, we, we go to be with our God. It's almost seen as one act of one resurrection, one spiritual resurrection given to his people. And this should communicate great hope to us, brothers and sisters, because at our death, we are not to view it as a negative thing. The scripture tells us that when you die and I die believing in Jesus Christ, it's not just that we're dying, we're being resurrected. We're going and being with our God and our Lord for the first time. To be apart from the body and to be with the Lord. And for this reason, 1 Corinthians 3.21 says, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. That death is ours. Death is the means by which you probably, and thus Christ comes back, will be with him forever, will reign with him. Your death by the grace of Jesus Christ is transformed into language of resurrection to be with him forever. 
And this should give us hope, brothers and sisters. Again, this book was written to persecuted Christians suffering in the present world. And John gives this, and the Holy Spirit does, so that they would look even at their temporal death on this earth and say that God has given us great promises that at my death, if I endure, I will have the crown of life and I will be with Him forever. What a wonderful motivation to persevere in this world. That we don't even have to wait until Christ's second coming to get the, the glory that is promised to us through grace. It's even at our death coming to us. But secondly, in verses 7 through 15, we're not only to take heart because Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated or started in this earth, we're to take heart because Christ's kingdom will be consummated at the last day. That all of these temporal blessings and temporal judgments that we experience in this present reality will be consummated in full on that final day. And the most full consummation of judgment we see is Satan in verses 7 through 10. The final judgment, the full judgment of that ancient serpent, the devil, will happen on that day. The thousand years are over, and we see that the devil must be released for a little time. So, there's no ratio given to us here. But the thousand years being a relatively long period of time, there will be a time, it seems in Scripture, where the devil is released and there will be great deception on the earth that is analogous to how Satan once deceived the earth before. That all the nations will turn back to him. More than that, they will come against the saints of God. They will come against the saints of God. And I want us to see here that the... Coming of Satan to deceive the world and the judgment of Satan is a really terrifying time. It's a terrifying time. Something that we haven't experienced living in this inter-advental period that the devil and Satan will go and deceive all the nations of the earth in a complete and final way and deceive them against the people of God. That all nations will gather together and we see language here, they'll gather around the camp of the saints and the, the holy city, that is, the church of Jesus Christ, that the armies of the world will literally be hunting us to kill us, all peoples of the earth against us because the devil deceived them fully in order to do it. This is a terrifying time. The wisdom and the malevolence of the devil is seen, but it all ends in a cataclysmic event. Cataclysmic event. And if these things are true, brothers and sisters, what, what ought we to do? How ought we to live? Well, the whole book of Revelation is given to us that we would prepare ourselves for that, isn't it? That Christ's coming, the final judgment is something that if we believe, we must prepare ourselves for it. Even as 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. If the end is coming, we must hold to the truth of the gospel. We must cling to it with all of our might because great deception is coming to the earth. But we also see here the key note is gracious intervention by God. You see that? That all the armies of the world gather together and God brings the church into the most hopeless situation you can imagine. Me and Brother Matt were talking last night about a particular hymn that um, bleak midwinter 
um, about Christ in His first advent, He came when things were the darkest. And light shone when it was dark. And this is the way God often shows Himself, isn't it? If you read throughout the Bible or even in your own personal experience, God often allows things to get so dark by our physical perception that we might feel like there's no hope in this. But He does that in order to highlight the great hope that we have in Him. That He will save us even at the most hopeless hour. And here in this text, you should feel the pressure. The devil is deceiving the whole world. All the nations of the earth are coming to kill all Christians. But what do we read? How does it end? Not with a great battle. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's all it said. God immediately, cataclysmically, saves His people. And physical judgment is given. We see Satan thrown into the pit with the beast and the false prophet. And we, we have to notice the words here. They were tormented day and night, forever ever that Satan partakes of eternal conscious torment because of his great sins in deceiving God's people and being against him and so this time will seem dark and from a worldly perspective it may seem hopeless but God's word will come to pass at the last hour and we see the final judgment of the world next verses 11 through 15 11 through 15. We see here, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and the sky fled away, and there was no place found from them. Um, and I hope that many of you haven't had this providence, but if you've ever been in a courtroom, for a criminal case especially, you, you might recall that. A courtroom is designed, all the events that take place now, the furniture is set up, it's designed to convey sobriety to the person that's in the courtroom, right? You're sitting and you have a fence, so to speak, in between you and the parties who are going to be judged. You have a person, a man or a woman, enter in with a long black robe. We all stand because of the honor of the person. They sit down in an elevated position looking over top of the people that are to be judged. And everything in a physical courtroom in this country is meant to convey to us a sense of sobriety about what's going to take place. And how much more this courtroom that we see. We see a great white throne. We see all human beings standing before it. You notice all, both small and great. That is white, black, poor, rich, American, whatever it might be, every human being that has ever lived coming and standing before God. And even more than that, we see that the sea and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. That even those that have drowned in the depths of the sea that cannot have their bodies be found, they will be found by our God in that final day. Bodies that were burned up, bodies that are destroyed will be found by our God in that final day and resurrected to his throne to be judged. To be judged. Every nation, every state, every family, every family member, and, and you here today, all of you will be standing in this courtroom that's described here. All of us will. Now, as we see the judgment of the world, we might ask the question what's the basis for the judgment? 
So if we're standing before this court and we're going to be judged, what's the basis for that? Well, we see here a picture of books being opened. The books were opened. The books were opened. These are all the sins that were ever committed on the face of the earth. All the evil deeds that every human being has ever committed will be talked about and brought to light on that final day. Everything we've ever done wickedly to one another, every thought, word, and deed. Doesn't Jesus Christ tell us in Matthew chapter 15 that every idle word that you speak will be brought into judgment? Every evil intention of my heart, every time as Brother Joey brought up in 1 Corinthians 6, every time I've looked at a woman to lust after her, that is going to be brought up before this courtroom. Books were opened. All the sins of commission, all the sins of omission where you didn't do the right that you should have done will be presented before the court. And we're told that this is the second death. Now I want us to notice we have the first resurrection and the second death talked about here. That for believers, death is a path to eternal life. That our death is called the first resurrection. But for unbelievers, their resurrection is called the second death. That's their path to dying eternally. It's a terrifying picture that we see here. A terrifying picture. And I know it's not a Christmassy thing to say, but we have to notice the emphasis here is that every one of these people that are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that are judged according to these books, will be thrown alive into the lake of fire. We're presented with the end state that God's Word promises for all that do, do not believe in Christ and they're judged according to their works. But we also see in this text the final salvation of the church. And if we were to imagine, and we're called to, that if we were standing before that court and every thought, word, and deed that you've ever thought was to be judged on that day, that all of creation would see it, how could we stand? We would cry out with Psalm 130, Lord, if You were to judge iniquities, who could stand? But praise God that there's another book in our passage. There's another book. We have the book of life. Those who are judged according to their works are those who did not have their name written in the book of life. And we see this repeated throughout Revelation. One text I think is explicitly clear that adds a little bit of language to this. Revelation 13.7 says, Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over it, the beast, to every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This book of life is the book of, the, of life of the Lamb who was slain. That He took upon Himself the sins of the people. We see this judgment presented, the books opened up, and these people thrown alive into the lake of fire. I want us to realize, brothers and sisters, in order for your name to be put into that book of life, the Savior had your books opened upon Him. Every evil deed that you ever thought, instead of judging you, His only begotten Son was judged for us. 
He had all the wrath of God placed upon him. He drank it down to the last drop so that you could never experience any judgment. Your death, in fact, in this world will be glory to you. In that final resurrection day, I really don't believe that we will be standing with the number of unbelievers while the books are open. I think we'll be standing on the other side of the courtroom. I do not believe that our sins will even be brought up in that account because they've been taken care of. Now, I could be wrong about that. I could be wrong about that. But we are told in Psalm 130, He does not record our iniquities. He's cast them away completely. We see... The great hope, that's what I want to show us today, that because of Christ's first advent, we have great hope now in this time to die a bold and courageous death if we're called to do it, and to live courageously for Jesus Christ because there are blessings here and now because Christ has inaugurated His kingdom. But brothers and sisters, even greater things than that await those who trust in Jesus Christ. Not because of anything you've ever done, but because He in mercy before the foundation of the world chose to save you. And so here today, we are called believers and unbelievers. Trust Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means to trust Him with everything you have, to, to lean upon Him, to receive Him, and to know that you can do nothing for your own salvation, but only believe in Him. Only believe in Him. It is in this time, between the two advents, that the Gospel is open and offered to everybody who would believe. And we can say with Revelation 22.17, the Spirit and the Bride, the church, in this time period, say, come. We evangelize because of this text. Satan is bound. We can spread the gospel freely, trusting God will save all of his people. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Christian, this text is given to you that you will have invisible realities revealed to you in this present time. Do not fear death. Death is only an abolishing of sin to us and a passage into eternal life. Do not grow sluggish, but trust that Christ who saved you is bringing all things to its concluded end and you will escape the coming judgment because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. The whole of Revelation 20 is not given for us to argue about. It is given for us to have great hope in this world and in the world to come. And as we turn our eyes to the Lord's Supper today, that's what Jesus Christ has envisioned for us. He shows the disciples before He died the first Advent's conclusion with His broken body and shed blood and said as the church in this inaugurated kingdom time, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. That we have blessings now partaking of the body of Christ, but they will be consummated fully on that final day when He comes again. Brother Joey.